The Janice Daniels Show. Janice Daniels Show. Repeat after me. America is a republic, and there's nothing democratic about the Democrat Party. Let's get our words right, people. She's tough. What part of shall not infringe don't you legislators understand? Read the Constitution. Read the Bill of Rights. Read the stupid so-called laws that you guys sign your names to. Your focus is shameful. She's smart. And besides, what have you legislators done that gives you power over us? Trick the people into electing you? Swearing an oath that you don't seem to understand or follow? She's tenacious. I say bring the Electoral College to the county level for all national elections so Michigan isn't governed by sanctuary jurisdictions like Wayne and Washtenaw counties. She's sassy. Michigan has a big problem. We have too many people who exhibit seditious behavior in elected office and that needs to change. I'm hoping against hope we can change the change. Let's talk about some of this stuff on the Janice Daniels Show. This could be fun. And now, your host, Janice Daniels. We're exactly seven days following the start of summer of 2020 and seven days before so-called Independence Day. So I wanted to wish you all a belated happy start to summer and an early happy Independence Day. Now, this episode of the Janice Daniels Show, I'm hoping can be used as like an educational tool for you and for your children who are thankfully restricted from going to the government indoctrination centers, commonly called public schools. Of course, I have to thank Pastor Ewell for identifying the so-called public schools as government-run indoctrination centers. Those aren't my words. I'm just borrowing them from Pastor Ewell because I happen to think he's correct. Anyway, what I want to do is spend this entire hour setting the stage and then examining this petition initiative that's currently being circulated for signatures to amend, once again, the Michigan Constitution. Now, I'm doing this because I want to give this audience the tools to teach your children how to take apart, examine, and then put together an informed position of agreement or opposition. We, the people, are the guardians of the Constitution, and in that role, we must begin to examine the ways in which this initiative process can be used by governments to give governments more power over the people. When, in fact, we know that our American constitutions are written to limit the power of government and every effort that the government takes to expand their own power has to be stopped by the people. Or we run the risk of completely losing our uniquely American experiment in self-government. Freedom isn't free. Now, I've asked Attorney Catherine Henry, who apparently is the drafter of this petition initiative called Restore Freedom, to join me to discuss and debate this initiative. And, of course, I do want her to join me, but I have found that in the past few days there are so many concerns that I have about this petition language that I think it would really be best if I take some time to go through my concerns without interruption so that at some point in the future, very near future, Ms. Henry and I can have our positions clearly stated and our discussion will have an understandable foundation. She's a constitutional attorney, and I'm just one of the most average of all of the we the people, the guardians of the Constitution. So as soon as I'm done reviewing this petition initiative on air, uh, I will have Miss Henry on the Janice Daniels show. Now, that might take me two shows to get through all of my concerns because I have a lot of them. And I want to start again by taking a look back at some what wiser men said about government so that we can kind of set that stage for our discovery. Back in 1788, 
James Madison, who later became the fourth president of the United States, wrote in Federalist 51 that ambition must be made to counteract ambition. And to sort of clarify that statement, he wrote, and I quote, if men were angels, no government would be necessary, end quote. We all know that one. But then later on in Federalist 51, he clarifies that when he said, in framing a government which is to be administered by men over men, the greatest difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the governed, and then in the next place, oblige it to control itself. So what exactly does it mean to enable the government to control the governed in a government that's set up of, by, and for the people? Well, I want to go back a little bit in history again to my friend Frederick Bastier, who in 1849 tried to warn the people of France to avoid socialism. In, he wrote a little pamphlet again called The Law. I've referred to it many times on this show because I think it really is so brilliant. But what he had to say about the collective force of government is important to today's discussion. He said that the only thing that the collective force of government, which in America is still the people, the only thing that the collective force of government is to do is that which we do for ourselves on an individual basis, but that we individually cannot do on a grand scale for the entire society. So I want to kind of clarify what he meant by that. This is my own interpretation of what he said. Basically, we labor to create the little slice of the world that we live in. We trade labor for a house to protect us from the elements, rain and snow. We trade labor for a car to get us from here to there. We trade labor for a gun to protect ourselves and our family from men who seem to be a little bit more like devils than angels. But individually, we can't protect everyone. So we hire a sheriff, and he organizes a posse or a group of men to protect many individuals, the collective. But the sheriff can't or he shouldn't be able to tell us what kind of gun we keep in our individual possession to do the job individually that we hire the sheriff to do collectively. The law is to prevent injustice. So the law should be written so that it protects your and my right to live in the kind of house we want to live in. And if that house happens to fall on our heads because it was poorly constructed, the law should be there to make sure that while we're cleaning up the mess, no devilish men come and steal our stuff. And if the contract to build the house was faulty, the law should be there to help the injured party get remedy from the offending party. That's the purpose of the law. To prevent injustice, the law is not supposed to regulate the kind of house we want to live in. Yes, of course, society wants engineers to keep us fully informed of the best building practices. But the law should only tell us how we can best be safe when building a house. But it seems that when the law is changed to pursue the exact opposite of what it's supposed to do, that is when we have problems. Now, for example, today, we, the good law-abiding people, are being regulated to the most minuscule degree on practically every single move that we make. And yet other people who may or may not even be American citizens are given free reign to poop in the streets of San Francisco or to burn buildings in towns across this country or to set up an autonomous zone within our country where people become the law unto themselves. 
When the government allows this type of destructive behavior, those are examples of the law being turned on its head to protect injustice rather than to prevent injustice. And it is up to we, the people, the guardians of the Constitution, to stop it. So I want to go back to Federalist Paper 51, where Madison said that the second obligation of the government is to control itself. We the people have allowed the men of government to get so out of control that they actually believe that it is their job to write more bad law on top of existing bad law. And that's not the way to govern a constitutional republic. So we the people have the obligation to restore good government. And we have the blueprints with which to do so. That's called the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. Now, I've heard Dr. Larry Arne from Hillsdale College once say, and he probably said it much more elegantly than what I'm going to say it, but he said that we have separated the Declaration of Independence from the Constitution when, in fact, the Declaration of Independence is kind of the demand letter for independence and the Constitution is the blueprint for that independence. So the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution should be viewed together so that we, the people, have a solid understanding of what independence looks like. I'm sure that Dr. Larry Arn said it much more eloquently. But that said, the Constitution is not some sort of cookbook that we just add new recipes to just because some one person or another thinks that they have a better way to make stuffed potatoes or something. And to that end, we the people have an obligation to examine and stop every new piece of legislation that might be dreamed up while we labor tirelessly to educate ourselves on the great founding documents that we have in our possession that defines our original grievances and then limits the scope of authority that we, the individuals, give to them, the government, to secure our independence. Anyway, I want to examine this petition that's going around. It's called Restore Freedom, and that really sounds good, doesn't it? But in my own humble opinion, I think it packs more bad law onto bad existing law. Just because it's called restore freedom doesn't mean that it will actually restore freedom. Just like there's nothing patriotic about the Patriot Act and there's no freedom to be found in the Freedom Act. Now, naming these initiatives this way gives it a cover, but we all know that you can't tell a book by its cover. We have to properly examine the changes first made to our Michigan Constitution in 2018 or the amendments added in 1963 and, quite frankly, the amendments added in 1908. If we're going to properly see that all of those amendments followed the intention of the original 1835 Michigan Constitution or the Declaration of Independence or the original National Constitution so that we could truly understand the framework that we now seem to want to amend again. But I just want to examine the language of this particular petition so that maybe we can discern whether or not it really does restore freedom. Now, the language that you're going to see on the front of this petition, if you're asked to sign it, says that, and I quote, a proposal to amend the Michigan Constitution, which, if adopted, would clarify the legal standard required in order for the government to deprive a person of life, liberty, or property. 
it goes on, but I want to clarify that first clause. What to me that says is that the government is trying to give itself authority in this initiative to make a clear legal standard or write more laws that would be required in order for the government to deprive an individual of their life, liberty, or property. And that turns the entire Constitution on its head. The government is not instituted to find ways to deprive us of life, liberty, or property. As the Michigan Constitution says right now in Article 1, Section 1, all political power is inherent in the people. Governments are instituted for their equal benefit, security, and protection. It does not say that government is instituted to set up standards where they can legally deprive us of our rights. The Declaration of Independence clearly states that God has given us the rights to life liberty, and property, and they are unalienable. That means they're untouchable. So by attempting to add a clause into our Michigan Constitution that instructs government to clarify or set up a series of legal standards that they have to use when they deprive the people of their unalienable rights means that the government can deprive us of our unalienable rights so long as they follow their own standards. And that, my friends, is usurpation of authority. The Declaration of Independence, which is the outline of our demands to hold sacred our unalienable rights to life, liberty, and property, didn't even include those words without due process. But the Bill of Rights did. And of course, the Bill of Rights was written in conjunction with the Constitution, and in total, that represents the blueprint that delineates the authorities that we, the people, granted to the central government, and which authorities were, were to be left to the states and or to the people. And in that document, it did include without due process. So, again, no one can be deprived of the right to life, liberty, and property without due process. So now, what does due process mean in a constitutional republic? An example. If a person commits a crime such as murder or theft, we have a kind of a societally acceptable set of established laws and punishments, but even that alleged criminal has all the due process protection of our rights delineated in the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, Seventh and Eighth Amendments in the Bill of Rights. Now, after the show, please study the Bill of Rights. Those amendments are the legal standards that the government must honor for the protection of the individual. Even the criminal is protected by due process. We do not want the government to have a set of standards designed to deprive us of our unalienable or untouchable rights. So as I go through this petition language today, if you're one of those people that can't stand dissecting the law, then go work in your garden or something. But just take my advice. Don't sign this petition. Don't work to gather other people's signatures on this petition unless you understand completely what it says. Now, for the rest of you who really do want to know and uh, are interested in understanding why you shouldn't sign this petition, just continue listening. And again... If you want to challenge me, there will be a time at a later show, just not today, because I have to get through my analysis 
before we can even have a, a framework for you to challenge me. So now let's go through the first proposed amendment in Article 1, Section 17. First of all, it breaks up the first sentence and makes two sentences out of it. Okay, I'm not sure why, but for some reason they seem to think it's important to disconnect those clauses. The original reading, 1963, says no person shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself, comma, nor be deprived of life, liberty, or property, comma, without due process of law. That's broken up so that it becomes two sentences. No person shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself, period. No person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. That becomes an independent sentence. Then there's a bunch of stuff, I guess, that's designed to clarify the legal standard required in order for the government to deprive a person of life, liberty, or property. It adds this really, really, truly, it's a mishmash of words. It really is. It says, when the government is the requesting party, such process shall include the requesting party to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the person had deprived or imminently threatens to deprive another of life, liberty, or property. So now we have three parties. We have the government, and this petition calls the government the requesting party. I'm not sure what they're requesting, but when they do request, whatever they're requesting, they have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that one individual, that's the second party, is trying to deprive the life, liberty, or property of yet another individual, that's the third party. So in other words, it looks like they want the government to be constitutionally authorized to be sort of a referee that sets up some sort of legal standards when one individual tries to deprive another individual of their untouchable rights. Say what? So then it adds another sentence. Times of emergency, disaster, war, public health crisis, pandemic, or any other extraordinary circumstance do not create a justification for depriving individuals or the general public of their constitutional or statutory rights or for modifying the procedures guaranteed under state or federal constitutions or law. Now, I think that this sentence is really, quite frankly, fraught with unknowable combinations of circumstances that are really kind of incompatible, in my humble opinion. War, wait, let's take war out of there, because war is a justifiable situation in which the president can call out the military to defend the people against outside aggression or inside insurrection. But those other terms, times of emergency, disaster, public health crisis, pandemics, or any other extraordinary circumstance, which is always a good catchphrase that lovers of big government throw in there when they want to change the law in kind of unknowable ways. Any other extraordinary circumstance. All of those things are like nebulous concepts open to a hundred years of legal debate by untold numbers of attorneys who makes me want, makes me wonder if they are actually representing the people's unalienable rights or are they representing the government's quote compelling interest so like all these things emergencies disasters public health concerns pandemics 
they can't be used as justification for, and I quote, modifying the procedures guaranteed under state or federal constitutional or statutory rights or law. So now it seems to me in my average person's look at the law, it seems to me that they are putting statutory rights and man-made endless written laws on this sort of the same playing field as the Constitution. They're not the same playing field. In fact, I don't even know what statutory rights are. Aren't statutes supposed to be written to support our God-given rights? And isn't man-made law supposed to be written to protect our rights within the framework of the constitutionally delineated limited authority granted by the people to the government to protect us? Tell me where I'm wrong. So I want to give an example on the federal level. When Congress gave up their constitutional authority to coin money, giving that authority that we the people gave to Congress, they gave it to a private institution called the Federal Reserve Bank. They used the lawmaking process to betray our trust. In my mind, that's called treason. They should have been stopped. They should have been indicted, convicted, penalized accordingly, but they had tricked the people into thinking that the Federal Reserve Act of 1913 was designed to protect the people's money after a so-called banking crisis of 1907. The people of 1913 had no idea that our own government would use the law to change constitutional authority and ultimately destroy the value of our money. The government used a crisis then, and they're using a crisis now. So again, I want to look at that same sentence. Times of emergency, disaster, war, public health crisis, pandemic, or any other extraordinary circumstance do not create a justification for depriving individuals or the general public of their constitutional or statutory rights or for modifying the procedures guaranteed under state or federal constitutions or law. Now, I have to ask you, does the Constitution guarantee procedures that can be modified or does it limit authority? I'm just asking. And if this petition initiative says that the Constitution guarantees procedures that cannot be modified by citing justification attributed to all these times of emergency, disaster, war, public health crisis, pandemic, or any other extraordinary circumstance, does that mean that the government can modify these newly found procedures that the Constitution supposedly guarantees? Because, say, for example, the government might not approve of our church. That's not in the list of justifications that can't be used. I don't know. I'm just bringing it up for discussion. So when the government gives itself power using unreadable law, that we can't even be certain if we took it to the Supreme Court for interpretation, 
we can't be certain that those justices even read the unreadable law. And I'm only saying this because I wonder, do you really think that the Supreme Court read the so-called Affordable Care Act bill before Chief Justice John Roberts decided that the individual mandate was a tax when Obama swore to us that it wasn't a tax? If they did read that entire bill, they should be impeached for incompetence for not declaring the entire thing as unconstitutional, an unconstitutional abuse of power. And if they didn't read it, then they should be impeached for not only interpreting the law, but making law. Either way, they should have been impeached now or even then, then or even now, whichever way they should be impeached. (laughs) That's my final word on that. That's my opinion. And this is an opinion show. So I think I'm safe with my opinions on an opinion show. So I want to finish up the changes on uh, Article 1, Section 17. Um, Well, I'll have to finish it up after the break. We're coming to the break. I think this is an interesting examination of the Restore Freedom Petition Initiative. We'll follow up after the break. The Janice Daniels Show. Janice Daniels Show on Wham Talk 1600 and 92.7 FM. We're working our way through a petition initiative that's being circulated right now that is to be voted on in November of 2020 if, in fact, they get enough signatures to put this thing on a ballot. Uh, it, uh, What it looks like, if you happen to see it, it is um, it doesn't say restore freedom on it, but it says initiative petition amendment to the Constitution. That should be enough to scare you into saying, I'm not signing this unless I can read through this. Well, of course, it gives you all the language that they want to change. Um, It's not on one page. It's not on two pages. It takes three pages of legal paper to get through all the changes that this particular initiative proposes to change. I think it's important that we go through it. We've been going through it for the first half hour of the show. So um, if you can, after the show, my podcast will be posted within about 24 hours. It'll be on Facebook, Janice Daniel Facebook page. Uh, it'll also be at anchor.fm forward slash Janice Daniels. I apologize for the length of that web um, site. In fact, you have to put HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash before you start putting anchor.fm forward slash Janice Daniels. Daniel. So, you know, why not make it hard to find my program? I think that's probably what's happening here. But um, nevertheless, uh, at some point, hopefully, I'll get my podcasts posted on Wham Radio's website. That's what I'm working on. But we got up to the point where I wanted to read to you the final changes that are proposed under Article 1, Section 17. Now, the way it's written right now, it says the right of all individuals, firms, corporations, and voluntary associations to fair and just treatment in the course of legislative and executive investigations and hearings shall not be infringed. Now, why is that even in there, to be quite honest with you? And, And was that 
crazy sentence in the 1908 Michigan Constitution? No, it wasn't. But we have to still compare that 63 Constitution to the 1908 Constitution. Uh, and if you wanted to do your comparison on your own, you'd have to look at Article 1, Section 16 of the 1908 Constitution because they changed up the numbering in 1963. I don't know why. It just makes it a little more confusing, but we can still go through it. So anyway, this crazy sentence that was added in 1963 stays in the petition initiative language but the word therefore is added in front of it, and it takes out the words individuals, firms, corporations, and voluntary associations. So it becomes the right of all to fair and just treatment in the course of legislative and executive investigations and hearings shall not be infringed. And I don't even know why that's added to the Constitution in the first place. And I would like to ask you, who in the group that's now called all would not be included in these following descriptors. Individuals, firms, corporations, and voluntary associations. Sounds like it's just a new recipe for kind of a bad uh, dish, quite frankly. Um, I don't know. I can't think of anybody who, who wouldn't fall into one of those groups. So why change it unless to remove it entirely? That would have been, to me, the proper course. Remove that entirely out of the Constitution, period. So I have, boy, I probably have about 15 more articles and sections to go, well, not 15 articles, but 15 more concerns with this petition initiative. So stick with me. This is really important. And again, you can use this when you want to develop your own analysis and you want to decide whether you really want to sign this thing or not, and then teach your children well. So we're going to move on to Article 3, Section 2. And in the 1963 Constitution, it's called the separation of powers of government. Now, that was as opposed to what it was called in 1908. And it was called the division of the powers of government. So division, separation, there's got to be a reason why they felt it had to be changed. And I just don't know if it was a good one. But anyway, that was Article 4 rather than Article 3. Again, it's just a little confusing. I don't know why they would make it confusing. I don't know. What do you think? Anyway, in 1908, the legislative, the executive, and the judiciary were called departments. In 1963, they were mysteriously changed to branches. So now I wonder if that's all a part of what is clarifying the separation of powers. I'm 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 not sure. Um I'm not going to really actually get into the gory details of this, but there are 160 words, 116 words that are proposed to be added to Article 3, which is called General Government, Section 2. And to my way of thinking, they aren't needed, they aren't appropriate, they aren't clear, and they're meaningless. And I'm sorry, but words matter. So eight of those added words are what I want to focus on right now, and I quote, legislative power is power to formulate public policy. No, it isn't. Now, honest to God, I don't know how the 1963 Constitution defines the legislative branch 
and their powers because that's under Article 4 and that has about 12 pages of words, whereas the 1908 Constitution, it was Article 5 and it was called the Legislative Department and it only had six pages. So there's six pages of additional words added to the Constitution in 1963 and personally I haven't I haven't had a chance to yet compare and contrast those six pages to the 12 pages to see if there were additional powers that the legislative branch gave to itself. I don't know. I might I might do that study at some point. I'm sure I will if I live to be 150. <laughs> um All I do know is that this most recent petition initiative called Restore Freedom, if adopted, would give the legislative department the power to formulate public policy. Now, to my way of thinking, formulating public policy should be done by the public. Wouldn't you think? Wouldn't you think? Now, I think that truly sometimes I worry that the government gives itself more power by tricking people into signing these petitions to amend the Constitution because government has, quite frankly, found out that this is the easiest way to grow big government because, generally speaking, we the people don't know what we're signing. And and believe me, I am not indicting the people. You know, I love the people, and that's why I take time to read this stuff so that you don't have to. It's very, very important that we understand what is being done in these petition initiatives. Now, the petition initiative that amended our 1963 Michigan Constitution, um, actually, it's the this very petition initiative, the Restore Freedom petition initiative that wants to amend our 1963 Michigan Constitution adds four more sections to Article 3 that include a total of about 2,340 words. 2,340 words by adding four new sections. I did read them all, but I'm not going to dissect them all today. Um, A couple of the comments that I made while I was reading them For section 9, I wrote unnecessary as an amendment to the Constitution, and I also wrote that it was nicely written paragraph that might be included in a primer on understanding the Constitution. For section 10, I wrote down the notes, people are not governed by constitutions and governments are granted clearly delineated limited authority in constitutions. So apparently section 10 reverses or tries to reverse that somehow. Section 11, I wrote that it's absolutely tyrannical. The last clause of it is absolutely tyrannical, in my humble opinion. Then section 12, that consists of 1,906 words that are added to the Constitution if this initiative is adopted. So back to that section 11 last clause that I said was absolutely tyrannical. It reads as follows. The more specific law shall control over more general law. The more recent law shall control or be regarded as an exception to or qualification of the prior law. Okay, so I'm going to try to give you an example that could possibly result if this is implemented. Just this particular clause alone. And again, this is just an example that I'm trying to think through 
Think through it with me. Let's say you have to appear in court because you have an Article 1, Section, section 6 issue. Now, Article 1, sex, Section 6 reads, Every person has a right to keep and bear arms for defense of himself and the state. That is the supreme law of the land. It is general, and it's not to be violated. So now let's say maybe a usurper governor or an attorney general or a legislative department decides to write a law that's more specific. Wait, legislators have been busy writing more specific so-called gun control laws for decades, if not centuries. And we, the people, have decided maybe in our naivete that in order to maintain a civil society, we'd allow these more specific laws to be controlling. You know, we have to pass a test, we have to get training, we have to be certified, etc., etc., in order to keep and bear arms. So my question is, why do we need a constitutional amendment like this? Well, I think it's generally speaking, in my humble opinion, because although we the people have allowed more specific law to clarify our general right to keep and bear arms, we hold the original most general law to be inviolate. That means they can't touch it. And for some reason, the drafters of this petition seem to want to change that and make the more recent law and the more specific law the controlling law. And I'm simply asking why. Personally, I think we have to keep the basic construct of our Constitution untouchable. Constitutions are not written to govern people. Constitutions are written to limit the government's authority so that they can use that limited authority to help the people prevent injustice. There's no valid reason whatsoever that we should allow these people to write initiatives that limit the people and expand the power of government, which is exactly what I think this Restore Freedom Petition Initiative language does. That's my opinion. Now we're going to move on to Article 4, which is the legislative branch. Now, for some reason, in 1963, Section 15 was added to the 1908 Constitution, setting up something that's called legislative councils. And now this new petition initiative, if adopted, abolishes those legislative councils. So I tried to find out what these legislative councils do exactly. Well, I found out that they're like special groups of legislators that meet to do things. And uh, there's a, a legislative council called the Committee on Joint Administrative Rules that had a meeting on June 10th, 2020. Um, and then they posted the meeting minutes. And those meeting minutes are about as clear as mud when trying to decide what they're doing. So this particular legislative council addressed 12 different rules regarding waiving a bunch of session days for the Michigan Licensing and Regulatory Agency regarding marijuana licenses. I really can't tell you what they did in this June 10th meeting, but I can tell you that our friends Pete Lucido, Matt Maddock, and Lana Tice, they're on this particular legislative council, so maybe one of them would like to enlighten us as to whether or not these councils should be abolished, because I have no idea. So then Article 4, Section 18 
um, which concerns journals. And, you know, the legislative departments are constitutionally required to keep daily journals so that the people might be able to see what they're doing. And then Section 20 concerning open meetings. Legislators are supposed to have meetings open to the people. So these two sections, 18 and 20, are changed by adding controlling references to Article 3, Section 12, which is a part of those 2,340-some-odd words that are being added to the Constitution. I think this is going to require some further review. In fact, I'll tell you, 1,906 of those words, approximately, make up that Section 12 alone. Remember, there were four sections that were added, 9, 10, 11, and 12. All total, they were 2,340 words. This one, Section 12, is 1,906 words. Now, unless we read it, and unless we understand it, and unless we agree with what they're saying, do you really think that they should be controlling references to other sections of the Constitution? I don't. So then Article 4, Section 34 is in this amendment, and it talks about bills. Now, um, I don't know. I'm going to read to you what was added in 1963 to um, actually added this section in its entirety to the Constitution. It says, any bill passed by the legislature and approved by the governor except a bill appropriating money may provide that it will not become law unless approved by a majority of the electors voting thereon. Well, you have to go back and listen to that again, but I, I guess in that in this context, it, it sounds to me like, and again, this is just my humble opinion, but it sounds to me like the legislators are being called electors in this section. So, so now the new petition initiative adds to that, and this is what they add. Any bill that will restrict the people and not just the government shall only be enacted if it has passed both houses of the legislature by a two-thirds vote or if it has been approved by a two-thirds majority of electors voting thereon. It seems to me now like legislature and electors are like two different sets of people. But again, I'm just an average person trying to figure out how they're trying to change our Constitution. And it goes on to say, any current law restricting the people and not just the government that was enacted in this manner shall remain enforceable. So again, restrict the people? Does anyone in this audience think that our Constitution was written to restrict the people? Of course not. Are laws being passed that do restrict the people? Of course they are. But is the answer to this problem to set up new constitutional parameters that are required to further restrict the people? I don't think so. And I think it's repugnant that we would even consider this addition to the Constitution. The way that we're supposed to address unconstitutional laws is to challenge their constitutionality, not write more unconstitutional laws to add on top of existing unconstitutional laws. Now we're going to move to Section 51. Again, that was added in 1963, which to my average person's way of thinking should never have been added in the first place. This is the clause that talks about public health and general welfare. I've mentioned it before. 
I'm going to read it again. The public health and general welfare of the people of the state are hereby declared to be matters of primary public concern. Duh. We all know that. Why did it have to be added to the Constitution? Because they wanted then to have the legislature be able to pass suitable laws for the protection and promotion of the public health. This is where the legislature gave themselves power over our health that was not given to them in prior constitutions and for good reason. Health is an individual person's matter in conjunction with an individual doctor working together to promote and protect good health but we let this section slip into our constitution supposedly giving the legislature the authority to pass laws for the protection and promotion of the public health thereby extra constitutionally inserting themselves between the doctor and the patient now this new petition initiative takes that sentence out It takes out the sentence that says the legislature shall pass suitable laws for the protection and promotion of the public health. Oh, good. But then it adds a whole bunch of new words that read as follows. Any law made to promote the public health shall be in accordance with all other state and federal constitutional provisions as all persons are entitled to the right of their own bodily integrity and to make their own decisions regarding their own health. No public body nor private business shall impose a requirement upon employees or customers that is likely to impair the individual health or safety of those employees or customers. Now, what does that even mean? So now our constitution is going to limit private businesses and it's going to give the government the authority to decide when a boss is imposing a requirement on an employee or a customer that's likely to impair the health or safety of employees or customers. Never, ever, ever vote for anything that you can't understand. But understand this, this petition initiative changes the entire nature of our constitution. It changes it from a document that limits government to a document that limits the people. And and, and I can go on and on, and I'm going to go on and on. Um, I'm going to move on next now to where they've changed in this petition. They want to change Article 5, which is the executive department. That's the governor. And then it starts with Section 5, which is called Examining or Licensing Board Members' Qualifications. Now, why was that section even added to the Constitution in 1963? Is that really part of our Constitution and the limiting authorities that we want to delegate to our government? Examining or Licensing Board Members' Qualifications. The way it read in 63 when it was originally slipped into the Constitution, it said, a majority of the members of an appointed examining or licensing board of a profession shall be members of that profession. Oh, good. So now, um, if we, the people believe that the Constitution, which limits the authority of the government, should be used to tell us who's to examine or issue licenses for private professions... Why would we give extra constitutional authority to the government to tell us 
who can and cannot be on those boards. So now again, this petition initiative removes a majority of the members of an appointed examining or licensing board of a profession shall be members of that profession and changes it to all members of an appointed examining or licensing board of a profession shall be members of that profession. To my way of thinking, this petition initiative in so many ways twists our constitution beyond recognition. And in my humble opinion, we the people should say no. We're going to move on to Article 5, Section 29, but guess what? We're going to have to do that next weekend because we're running out of time. This is critically important. I want you to be sure and listen to this episode again and then listen to next week's episode. That's going to be July 4th. It'll be a pre-recorded show but because uh, I'm going to have a barbecue with all my friends and family. But until then, be careful what you're saying. And remember, spread the word. It's Wham! at WAAM out of Ann Arbor, Michigan. And I'm Janice Daniels.